This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you all for being here um, to uh, join me for this talk that is somehow um, really relevant and immediate, but also um, esoteric and obscure, in my opinion. I um, am an art critic. Like, uh, in addition to being a, a socialist in New York, I'm an art critic, as Daphna said, and um, have this new book out. Um, I have a this chapter in that book called Elite Capture and Radical Chic, which traces how some of the uh, protest energies of the 60s uh, migrated into cultural spaces and how that sh shapes the uh, politics of art and politics in general. Now, can people hear me? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. Um, so that it kind of cuts from the 60s to now. And it, 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 this chapter, this talk I'm going to give you, kind of began as an outtake from that talk because the 90s are a really important moment in the story of, of cultures, the, the politics of culture. Um, and uh, so I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. I think it's a really important subject for how we think about the present and um, and uh, there's, it's a complex subject with a lot of moving parts, um, so bear with me. So if you open up Google News, as I did this morning, you will find dozens of stories about uh, the culture of wars. Uh, it really does seem to be one of the key terms in thinking about the politics of the present. I mean, here are just some from today. Uh, DeSantis stokes culture wars as 2024 profile grows. There is nowhere to hide from the culture wars. Democrats, you can't ignore the culture wars any longer. And my favorite, navigating the insurance culture wars from the website Insurance Business. <laughs> the notion of uh, culture wars is, is, is really important. So I want to talk about um, how we think about that. What's a left-wing way to think about this subject? It's going to be a complex talk. It's going to have three parts. Um, I'm going to first talk we're going to just comment on what I think is a possibly distinctive uh, Marxist way of, of approaching the subject. And then I'm going to talk about the origin of the concept of the culture war in the, uh, in the early 1990s to see if that tells us anything about how uh, the concept functions and the work it does today. And then I'm going to comment at the end on what it means to, to fight a culture war and, and, and you know, noodle on the, on the topic of the of, of, the, of this talk's title, uh, you know, can, can a culture war be one? So for me, what I find interesting as a Marxist about the idea of a culture war and looking at the, the, culture, the concept of culture war through a, a Marxist lens is that um, in the discourse about it, I feel as if it, culture wars are described as this aberrant, specific, freakish phenomenon where, where politics has uh, 
has gone off the rails, or, or at least in left discourse. But in fact, I'd argue that from a Marxist point of view, most ways of thinking about political conflict that are not Marxist default to treating them as culture wars. That, in fact, is the Marxist intervention into philosophical discourse, whereas previously ideas of culture were seen as a motor force of history or ideas. Marx argued that actually material interests, economic structures, classes were the motor force of history. As he says in the German ideology, the phantoms formed in the human brain are also necessarily sublimates of the material life process, which is empirically verifiable and bound to material premises. Morality, religion, metaphysics, all the rest of ideology and the corresponding forms of consciousness thus no longer retain the semblance of independence. Life is not determined by consciousness, but consciousness by life. So, for instance, uh, a typical normal uh, discourse would look at the Protestant Reformation in Europe as kind of a culture war, as a clash of doctrines and religious personalities and methods of interpreting the Bible. But the more characteristic Marxist analysis um, even stereotypical Marxist analysis would be to look at it as emerging, among other things, from a revolt of the nascent commercial merchants and small property holders who found in the doctrine of biblical, biblical direct interpretation a way to revolt against the centralized and exploiting feudal authority of the church, of the Catholic church. And I don't think... Um, that's a philosophical framing. I don't think this is actually a uh, esoteric philosophical question. There's a kind of default idealism in the philosophical sense, the sense that ideas drive the world, to much of you know common street-level wisdom, too. You'll hear people talk about poverty as coming from bad choices, from bad habits, from a culture of poverty, and so on, rather than from structures of exploitation and dispossession. Culture is tangible, after all, and it's immediate, and it feels like something you could change with an individual decision, whereas structures of economic power are huge, inscrutable, and require collective action to do anything about. And of course, there's a, there's a big interest from the people who actually rule in talking about their own, in not talking about their own cynical material interests. So, you know, there's an ideological tendency to tell other kinds of stories about how society works. To obscure how, it, how, how, how the, the actual, you know, if you don't know how Society is actually ruled, you can't change it. Um, in any case, so I want to begin by uh, ask, by I want to, us to understand that culture war framing of politics is an aberrant, it is a default way that conflict appears at its most immediate level to a lot of people. The second preliminary point about Marxism and the culture wars. The culture war framework of politics is, I think, for a lot of socialists and people on the left, contrasted to the class war framing of framework. Um, that's the title of a recent Jacobin article on the subject pretty directly. We don't need a culture war, we need a class war. Well, um, I think we have to acknowledge that what a class war is, is not obvious to most people. I wrote a book, uh, you know, this is 2013, oh, 10 years ago, on art and class. It's called 9.5 Theses on Art and Class. It's in Haymarket Room as well. And one of the points I make in it is about the fuzzy definition of the, the term class. It's actually almost fuzzier than uh, the term art, which is really saying something. Uh, a Marxist definition of class is this very pure, big tent thing. The working class for Marxists 
is most people who sell their labor for a living and the ruling class of the people who govern and profit from their labor. But I have to admit that even I have difficulty using that definition consistently because it's not the ordinary way of using the term class. Class is commonly means to people something else. It means wealth and poverty. Those things don't necessarily um, coincide. Like a union member, the whole point is to get more, bigger piece of the pie so you're not poor. Sure, so you have a middle class life. Um, and, also, and also, and this is most important for our argument, class in the common everyday usage clearly has something to do in people's minds with education and status. With blue collar versus professional, unskilled versus, versus skilled, college educated versus non-college educated. My point here is that what is called the culture war today is in fact an argument over how to define a class war. Our desired Marxist framing, the idea that everyone who works for someone else is working class and therefore has a common interest, that's what class looks like at its most class conscious. In Marxist terminology, that's class when it is the class for itself, not the class in itself. But again, that's not really the lived experience, uh, everyday experience of class, and what we're calling the culture wars framework often comes from an attempt by one or another ruling class faction to play one side or another of the cultural definition of class against each other. Particularly in a mainstream culture that really does look down and ignore non-professional workers in a society where prospects for non-college educated people who are the majority have stagnated, the cultural definition of class is going to be pretty powerful. This is why so much of what is characteristic about culture wars rhetoric and argument today is debate about language norms, specifically about the way people are taught to speak in a college setting, i.e. political correctness or today wokeness. It was clearly part of Trump's genius to speak directly to this dimension of class. As the man himself said, I love the poorly educated, a phrase that produced gales of laughter from professional, probably mainly college-educated commentators. In the last election cycle, the single most uh, Trump-donating professional category is homemaker at 96%, 96 percent, 96 percent of donations from people who considered classified themselves as homemakers donated went to Trump, followed by people who put their professional their profession as disabled or dis on disability, welders, ranchers, and stay-at-home moms. The most Biden-supporting profession was fundraising professional, <laughs> followed by social worker, professor, dean, and public relations professional. Uh, all professions that were 94% or more for Biden, it is pretty clear split between people who are not at all credentialed and people who are very credentialed. <clears throat> okay, so... Um, there's some preliminary comments on the subject to keep in mind. And with that general framework in mind, I want to switch gears to talk about the, the actual origin of the term culture wars, the most specific reference when people bring it up today as we're in a new culture war. Um, this is what they mean. They usually are referring to the 90s. But like I said, it's actually hard to define a period of political struggle in American history that is not in some way readable as a culture war. The various Red Scares and McCarthyism certainly have elements of culture war. The 1960s are certainly often remembered in the Forrest Gump mythology of the era mm -hmm. as something like a culture war between the squares and the long hairs. Nixon definitely deployed, deployed proto-culture wars language. 
For the right, the changing social mores of the 1960s are something like the primal scene of culture wars rhetoric. When the family started to break down, when mainstream culture became really debauched and secular. Now, in the 1960s, there were a group of reactionary intellectuals who, who started to, to call them, call them neoconservatives, started to organize against the changes that, of the time, uh, against the new left. Um, they're often described as laying the groundwork for the culture wars of today, and of, of the 90s and today. Uh, people like Irving Kristol, people who often came from Marxist backgrounds and inherited Marxist um, frameworks, you know, habits of, of argument in terms of systems and, 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 and root cause. And one of the ways they consistently attacked the new left of the 1960s was as framing those movements as the result of what they called a new class. Because new class thinking is a big part of, of the, f the framework that they laid for this. The argument was exactly that the protest movements in the 1960s were the result of professors and media elites who were trying to impose their radical cultural values on an unwilling population from above, and that this new kind of class war was a more salient opposition to the old labor capital dynamic. And there were reasons that those charges potentially resonated or stuck. One of the things about the new left in the 1960s is that it was very heavily associated with student movement and student movements in the university. That's partly what made the new left feel new. There was a vast, vast expansion of university enrollment um, in the time period from 3.7 million in 1960 to 7.8 million in 1970. College became much more important to economic life. So it was quite easy for conservatives to smear the new activism as issuing from some kind of new form of entitlement or privilege. Uh, many of the most big, the most, the big, most remembered media set-piece confrontations in the 1960s, such as Berkeley, Kent State, Columbia, the, the, the places that we really, the words actually still evoke the 1960s, were at universities. Some of the lasting changes and gains in the 1960s were institutionalized in the establishment of ethnic studies departments and women's studies departments that came out of protests on those camp campuses. Um, after Richard Nixon uh, won election by a landslide in 1968, attacking the counterculture and black power movements and speaking for the silent majority, and after the so-called hard hat riots of 1970, when construction workers savagely beat anti-war protesters, there was a very wide turn in liberal and left opinion against the working class as a whole, as reactionary and, and alien to progressive values. By the mid-1970s, there was also plenty of analysis from the left as the kind of, you know, the, the fact that the revolution wasn't going to arrive became clear. Um, there's plenty of attempt by the left to like, figure out what had gone wrong. What, and one of the major analysis that people talked about was that the 60s revolutionary movements had been too cultural. They had been too middle class, too focused on lifestyle and culture. There's a book by Luke Botansky and Eve Chiapello called The the new spirit of capitalism is more or less the argument they make that the movements of the 60s contained what they call two kinds of critiques um, within them, what they call the political critique and the cultural critique. And these two things seemed aligned for a while, but they actually could be broken apart. So, and the ruling class way out of the 60s was to break them apart, was to absorb and commercialize a lot of the cultural demands to placate the lefties while at the same time persecuting and crushing the revolutionary political demands. So 
Your boss might not wear a hat and tie anymore. Capitalism felt different, even as unions got the shit kicked out of them um, in the period to come. This is a way of saying the line that both Marxist and conservative culture warriors often repeat about the fallout of the 1960s. The right got the economy and politics, and the left got culture and the academy. That was the compromise. Okay, so that's, that's just a prologue. Let's skip ahead to the 90s. Um, 30 years later, that's the length of one nostalgia cycle, the midpoint between now and then. Um, so the 60s culture wars of the 80s and 90s look back to the 60s as their primal scene. It's what happened today, where you look back at the 90s as, as, as kind of having formed the language of, of, uh, that, we, that we reach for when trying to describe the contemporary. To a startling degree, the major cultural touch, political touchstones of the present news cycle have their points of origins in the 1990s. Cultural critical race theory, which began in the 1970s out of despair uh, by black academics with um, the colorblind Cold War liberalism as an instrument for racial progress as the civil rights movement stalled out, exploded in the early 90s, like most of the classic references are from 1992-1993. Kimberly Crenshaw theorized the term intersectionality in relationship to the Clarence Thomas hearings and the culture wars debate over whether the rap group Two Live Crew was obscene. The contemporary use of the idea of cultural cultural appropriation emerges in Canada's version of the culture wars, the voice appropriation wars of the 1990s. That's a story I I do tell in, in my book, my new book. All of these um, terms emerged from academia or cultural domains where the left ended up having the most influence post-1960s. Today, I I think that there is a kind of uh, socialist common sense about culture wars politics and that that it is that culture war politics are a kind of deflector shield around neoliberal capitalism. The 1980s saw the new right take power and attack both the social gains of the 1960s as well as the legacy of the New Deal. Ronald Reagan rose to office, first as an actor who named names in the McCarthy hearings, then as a governor of California who talked tough against the 60s student movement, and finally to the presidency in 1980 as a warrior for family values, who activated evangelical Christians to support him as a new organized um, electoral force. The idea... uh, Essentially, I think, is that in order to sell an unpopular pro-banker agenda, you, to break up the remains of the New Deal, to roll back the, the, the gains of the 60s, you needed something popular so the Republicans leaned into cultural issues. A slightly more uh, sophisticated version of this thesis is that Reagan's cultural program was the product of the post-60s disintegration of the Democratic coalition. Abortion had once been such a niche Catholic issue that Protestants hesitated to embrace it. Um, the new language of return to fundamental values and a crisis of, caused by you know, secular professors allowed the Republicans to pick up Catholic and Orthodox Jewish voters who had once been tied to the Democrats as the party of immigrants and redrew the political map as being about traditional values on the right versus secular progressivism on the left. However, when it comes to the actual term culture wars, it is actually not until the tail end of the 1980s, when the Reagan revolution is already under the helm of his successor, George H.W. Bush, that the idea of the culture wars becomes self-aware, so to speak. 
Um, so now I'm going to turn to a few comments about what this very specific historical background tells us about the specific function of the contemporary sense of, of a culture war. First, the Reagan revolution had been very good for Wall Street and business in the 1980s. But by the end of the decade, this first neoliberal offensive hit its contradictions. The frenzy of deregulation and cronyism yielded a multi-billion dollar savings and loan scandal, um, followed by a huge economic crisis. The, the $3.4 billion collapse of Lincoln Savings and Loan put the spotlight on its manager, Charles Keating, a one-time anti-pornography activist with direct ties to the Bush family. And in the, the economy, there were really sustained job losses, with unemployment rising from 7% in October 1989 to a high of over 12% in the election year of 1992. And it's in that exact moment that conservative activists detonated the most infamous culture war scandal for art, the 1989 controversies over National Endowment for the Arts funding for Andreas Serrano's Piss Christ and Robert Maplethorpe's BDSM photography these were, um, you know, the idea that your government was giving money to just deviancy and blasphemy was extremely useful to rally the Republican base of values voters at the moment when the promises of Reaganite deregulation stood exposed. So this original advent of the modern culture wars idea actually shows how selling hypermoralism and hypercapitalism as one package will cause a ratcheting up uh, effect. Because the former fails, as the former fails and causes actual misery, which as Marxists we know it will, um, the result is it can only lean into an intensified focus on the moralism as what it can deliver. It's also worth saying that the art scandals of 1989 said something about the location and isolation of the 1960s um, left. Believe it or not, government funding for arts was a kind of a consensus good in the 1960s. It was actually Richard Nixon who otherwise spoke for, you know, the silent majority who hated the counterculture. Um, he was the guy who issued, gave the National Endowment for the Arts its biggest ever increase in funding. He doubled its budget in 1971, the same month, incidentally, that um, of, the, of the May Day protests in Washington when the, the 60s movements, like, the, when it's, I think still one of the largest mass arrests in U.S. history. Um, um, but by the 1980s, because of the post-60s left, it placed so many of its chips on the cultural production as its remaining stronghold, its remaining voice. Art was, had also become synonymous with leftism, so it was pretty easy to demonize art funding as a whole, as socialistic, as, 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 as big government um, giving money to hand out to... Um, to, uh, to uh, hippies, degenerates. Um, so this theme of isolation then relates to the second point I want to stress about culture of war politics in this period. Though it tends to be presented in, in the media as a, as a primarily right-wing ideological operation, distracting from, you know, like I said, the real, the real agenda of, of real economic agenda, a culture war does have two sides, and what makes the leftward side vulnerable comes from the products of left isolation as it moved out of the streets and into the classroom and to a certain extent into the museum. Political correctness, of course, is the other big term of the 1990s um, that the 1990s has given us 
that has also seen like a huge renaissance in the last in the last five years. Um, many of you here, if you're a socialist, will know that the term political correctness was originally not a right-wing term. Uh, it is originally a left-wing piece of jargon. It is a late echo of the terminology from Marxist organizations of the 1960s. The idea of hewing to correctness of political line. As John Molyneux wrote, it evolved into PC, an ironic phrase among wised-up leftists to denote someone whose line-towing fervor was too much to bear. I think we've all met someone like that. Uh, the fixation on moralistically browbeating comrades over the finer points of dogma was viewed as a symptom of an increasingly isolated activist left in the late 1960s. The phenomenon former Students for a Democratic Society member Frederick D. Miller called encapsulation, defined as when a movement or organization develops an ideology or structure that interferes with efforts to recruit members or raise demands. It wasn't until a 1990 article in the New York Times that campus PC culture became a nationwide uh, obsession. The term politically correct, this is him I'm quoting from, from, the, uh, I'm quoting from Richard Bernstein's article um, called, uh, uh, called uh, yeah, Political Correctness and Cultural Studies, the name of the article in the Times. The term politically correct with its suggestion of Stalinist orthodoxy is spoken more with irony and disapproval than with reverence. Um, but across the country, the term PC, is as, commonly, as it is commonly abbreviated, is being heard more and more in debates over what should be taught at the universities. There are even initials PCP to designate a politically correct person. Really has all the marks of a classic, you know, kids these days kind of moral panic, but it really caught on. So just a year later, on the campaign trail in 1991, George Bush was attacking political um, correctness from the highest office in the land. Ironically, he said, on the 200th anniversary of our Bill of Rights, we find free speech under assault throughout the United States, including on some college campuses. The notion of political correctness has ignited controversy across the land. And although the movement arises from the laudable desires to sweep away the debris of racism, sexism, and hatred, it replaces old prejudices with new ones. It declares certain topics off-limits, certain expressions off-limits, even certain gestures off-limits. What began as a cause for civility has soured into a cause of conflict and even censorship. So it's very familiar rhetoric from, from, from the recent past. It's important to note, however, and this is the point of me bringing up political correctness, that, that the term, the concept, the, the pattern of, 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 of thought designated wasn't just a right-wing chimera as far as people on the ground were concerned. It was very definitely considered a problem on the left in the same period. Um, writing in 1985, Professor Linda Epstein, a, a veteran of the protest movements in the U.S. who worked in the storied History of Consciousness program at the University of Santa Cruz, made it clear that she viewed the then relentless volley of mainstream attacks on PC as part of a larger attack on the tenuous gains made by people of color and women in higher education. She expressed reservations about even using the term political correctness as a diagnosis for the atmosphere on campus because of how it was being deployed by conservatives and a tabloid press. But, she said, the term does get at what seems to me to be a troubling atmosphere on the left. Epstein taught the history of anti-racist and feminist struggles. Yet she wrote that now an intellectual climate dominated by collective fear of saying something wrong 
was making it difficult for her to teach exactly those lessons of the 1960s and 70s civil rights and feminist movements that conveyed how sectarian squabbling, personal infighting, and line policing had played a role in undermining those important movements, since critiquing these movements in class might potentially be seen as either racist or sexist, Epstein said. Today's political correctness is more oriented towards moral and strategic thinking. It often seems more concerned with what language is, with what language is used than what the changes are made in the social structure. The danger is not so much regimentation as preachiness, a search for moral self-justification, the assigning of moral status in terms of exclusion or subordination, and the use of moral judgments as clubs against ourselves and others. Perhaps today's political correctness bears some relation to the peculiar situation in which progressives find ourselves in the 80s and 90s. We have considerable cultural influence, at least in some arenas, notably the university and intellectual circles, but virtually no political clout. This state of affairs can lead to frustration, cynicism, about the possibility of political effectiveness and a temptation to focus on berating each other rather than founding grounds for unity. And again, I think that sounds very familiar from the recent period. Finally, uh, the third and final factor I want to or thing I want to point to that people don't sometimes point to about the or this origin story of, of, of the culture wars, it's significant, it's significant to me that the locus classicus of the culture wars, 1989 to 1982, more or less, is at the end at the Cold War. It's actually precisely the end of the Cold War. For generation, the specter of Soviet communism had served as a convenient foil for the right so that any concessions to progressivism, including to labor or infamously the civil rights movement, could be demonized as communist plots by association. But simultaneously, the Cold War ideological competition for foreign influence was material incentive to contain some of the more reactionary cultural energies of the United States, which look pretty unappetizing on a world stage. These optics were a factor in why the civil rights movement was able to gain ground, Bigot cops beating black protesters really did not make American capitalism look appealing as an economic role model in Africa or Latin America. It was also one of the original impetus behind the National Endowment for the Arts as a funding body. It was specifically theorized, as a quote from Arthur Schlesinger Jr., as an attempt at transforming the world's impression of the United States as a nation of money-grubbing materialisms. Money-grubbing materialists. Not materialists in our sense. Um, it was the fire-breathing, proto-Trump, anti-immigrant, Republican reactionary, uh, Pat Buchanan, who provided the new rhetorical device to give a new name to, and face for a plausible foil to inspire uh, conservative mobilization in this new period. The first major use of the term culture war is credited to Buchanan's speech at the 1992 Republican National Convention. Buchanan pressured uh, George Bush from the right, but failed to win the candidacy. Um, but he set the tone for a radicalized Republican Party agenda with a podium-pounding speech declaring that the U.S. was locked in a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be, as was the Cold War itself. Buchanan followed up with a fire-and-brimstone column called The Cultural War for the Soul of America. He said, Give me the child for six years, Lenin reportedly said, quoting the Jesuits, and he will be a Marxist forever. 
J.V. Stalin, who was a partial to Chicago gangster films, thought that if only he had control of Hollywood, he could control the world. Too many conservatives, writes art critic James Cooper, never read Mao Zedong on waging cultural war against the West. Mao's essays were prescribed reading for the Herbert Marcuse generation of the 1960s, who now run our cultural institutions. Conservatives were oblivious to the fact that modern art, long ago separated from the idealism of Monet, Degas, Cezanne, and Rodin, had become the purveyor of destructive, degenerate, ugly, pornographic, Marxist, anti-American ideology. Well, we were off eating the Contras. A fifth column inside our own country was capturing the culture. This broad strokes picture is the seed of the present day right-wing conspiracies about the horrors of, I don't know, cultural Marxism and video game criticism and so on. Um, his schema was, however, a distorted reflection of the real contours of the post-1960s compromise where progressive advances the level of commercial culture compensated for a loss in the domain of political power. And, and just incidentally, before I transition to the end, I are coming to an end here. Um, this moment also facilitated, the end of the Cold War also, of course, facilitated the Democrats' drift to the right. Given that the um, collapse of the USSR was taken to prove that Margaret Thatcher's mantra that there is no alternative was, was perfectly correct, Bill Clinton came to office in 1992 with a specific mission to make the Democrats more enthusiastically capitalist and pro-business. To do so, he was capable of his own culture wars piece of theater. He picked a fight with civil rights leader Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Bush Coalition over the supposedly anti-white statements by the rapper Sister Soldier. This provoked outrage with progressives and signaled Clinton's distance from the 60s inheritance of his party, showing to conservatives that in inside the Democratic Party that he was, uh, he was a safe hand on the wheel. So uh, that's, that's the past. Then how to think about all this in the present. Um, what do we take away from this analysis? So, first of all, I think it's clear that the culture wars framing is what happens when you take what Marxists think of as the fundamental demand, the redistribution of wealth and power off the table, leaving political energy to be displaced into other areas. This is not just a right-wing Trump thing. Uh, I feel like you know, on, from the Democratic, the establishment Democratic side, um, recently I've, I've, an example I've heard a lot of people cite is uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom, who's been leaning into these inane stunts, like taking photos of himself reading banned books, like Toni Morrison's beloved, to see what all these other states are afraid of, even as he vetoed an increase in the Cal Grant system that would have helped a very large number of disadvantaged students in his own state pay for college. <clears throat> Second, the culture wars have their contemporary character due to the fact that left energy is overpowered in highly visible cultural and academic realms will weaken other sectors of the economy. This leaves it easy for conservatives to reframe class struggle on cultural lines, and this is very disadvantageous terrain, particularly as economic stagnation makes life more and more appear as a zero-sum competition for scarce resources. Can you win such a war? This is something, this is a funny fact I found in, in, in researching the topic. As recently as 2015, 
Andrew wrote, art, scholar Andrew Hartman published his book, The War for the Soul of America. It's a history of the culture wars in the 90s. And he's, in his conclusion, he concludes by saying, the culture wars are over and the progressive side had won. <laughs> and that furthermore, um, culture wars framing of politics would be replaced by a new kind of class politics, given that neoliberalism's ravages were creating a common degradation of life on both sides of the cultural spectrum, creating the basis for a new intuitive kind of alliance. That obviously was not true. <laughs> I think we can say that it is naive to hope that we will ever see the emergence of a pure class war. If we had a pure, united, conscious working class, we would have the revolution, essentially. <laughs> class rule is always going to be about creating, ruling class creating and exploiting new divisions to keep that from happening. That's the definition of, of the struggle that we're all a part of. I said at the start that we needed a Marxist framing of the concept of culture war. The last thing I want to say is that this means not just a material analysis of, of the concept, but a dialectical materialist point of view. One where you don't just view culture and economy as independent areas, but as linked by contradiction that you have to navigate. The question gets framed often, I've heard, as one of symbolic issues versus material issues. However, obviously, there are highly symbolic issues that are also material issues. Abortion rights, one of the major culture wars fault lines, is a very material issue. Life and death is a very, very material issue. The dilemma, of course, is how you defend or advance uh, uh, the controversial causes that you hold. Um, and the only answer I know that doesn't become a matter of, raw, of a raw physical shoving match is emphasizing that you also support causes that might actually materially benefit people who disagree. To this day, there are a large number of Democrats, particularly black and Hispanic Democrats who are not college educated, who are anti-abortion, but who stay connected to the Democratic Party. And this is specifically because of the inertia of seeing the Democratic Party as the party of the New Deal safety net and civil rights gains. We probably all have criticism of the Democratic Party as that vehicle, but that's, you know, that's, that explains the, 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 the persistence. Um, conversely, there are things that, that are purely economic issues that I think you would intuitively think of as purely economic issues that are reframed as cultural issues all the time, as when anti-labor laws are framed as the right to work because unions threaten the values of American freedom and American free enterprise. That's, that's, that's a culture war framing as far as I'm concerned. And uh, a, a, flip, a flip side pitfall of this is that it makes little difference to be pro-labor or for redistribution or even to be a socialist if it's just kind of a cultural identity, if it doesn't ever have any kind of actual material force behind it. If you, so any way you look at the question, the political work from our point of view means putting material redistribution onto the table even when the entire culture wars framing is designed to take it off and redirect the conversation. If we can't bring these areas together, if we accept the false choices between them, then we will surely lose the class war, the culture war, and any other war that we have to fight. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.